As we prepare to hear God's word together this morning, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John chapter 3. That is where we will beginning this, be beginning this morning as we look at Christ who is above all. John chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 25 to the end of the chapter, then pray, and then we are going to dig in and consider God's word together. Listen as I read God's word. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples over a Jew and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from above. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from above is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony uh, sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the word of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Lord God, as we take this time together to consider your word, and more particularly, God, to consider the distinctiveness of Jesus Christ the Son of God, Lord, and, and what distinguishes Him from everyone who came before and everyone who comes after, His singularity, His special nature, the fact that He is the Son of the Sovereign God, and, and all that that entails, Lord, we pray that as we look at things today that You would teach us to value and see how Christ is above all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In that section of scripture there, when we're beginning to deal with certain things, he says twice, and really this is, this is where this idea flows out of what we're looking at today. In John chapter 3, verse 31, it says this of Jesus, he who comes from above is above all. Then it says this, continuing, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So twice, right there in that short little section, twice it speaks of Jesus. That is who the he is that John the baptizer is referencing. He who is from above, he who is from heaven, he is above all. And that's what I just want us to begin to grasp today. The absolute priority and preeminence of Christ above all. Absolutely everyone and everything. One of the things that I want us to see as this begins to unfold um, we see this, for example, it says this in um, verse 29, just a few verses up that I read in the, in the opening section. It says this, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. There he's referencing again Christ. Christ is the bridegroom. And we know the scriptures will go on to speak of him as securing his bride. That is his church with his own blood. And John looks at himself and says, I, I'm not the bridegroom. 
I'm the friend of the bridegroom. But he, it's not simply that he's his friend, but he says it, says it like this. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him greatly rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. And goes on to say, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So when we begin to see this, I want us to see this. Uh, with Christ, knowing who he is, being united to him by faith, there is a deeper, more abiding joy and a truer, more persisting pleasure than anything this world has to offer. The world runs after so many things seeking to find pleasure. And one of the struggles and one of the, the heartbreaking realities is they give themselves to all kinds of wickedness and all kinds of worldliness that they might achieve brief moments of elation. Brief moments of, of overcoming ecstatic ecstasy or pleasure. But the problem that they constantly face is they, they do their wickedness. They uh, give themselves. They, they take into themselves certain substances and things. And, and the effect of those things is what? For a moment. And then what passes? A little bit of time passes. The day passes. The week. They've got to do it again. Every pleasure and every uh, happiness that the, that the world continues to produce and that men seek after, it, it's just like trying to grab handfuls of water. It's just like trying to grab handfuls and fill your pockets with the wind. You can't do it. It just slips through your fingers. And then, then you have to grab again and grab again. What what he is saying here and what those of us who are in Christ have come to know is there is an exceeding joy in knowing him. Peter says it this way, though you do not now see him, you rejoice with a joy unspeakable. The world, they can speak of their experiences and their joy and they can encourage you to get there. What we, by the grace of God, when we know who Christ is, and when we know what he's done, and we know the promises that are ours in him, the peace that passes understanding, we, we, there is an abiding sense of joy that prevails even in the moments of the deepest pain, which is something that, that the world cannot grasp. And they run to this and they run to that. And that's why once you know Christ in the fullness of his glory, once you have seen the richness and experienced it, I've heard his voice. And the, bride, the friend of the bridegroom, you know what he does? He rejoices to hear the voice of the bridegroom. And because of that, his joy is complete. Suddenly, those things that draw the world and maybe at one time used to draw us, they look so empty. They look so weak. Uh, I've known dear saints who, who you know, you, they've spent their time in, in certain experiences, going out late night into all of these clubs where lights are flashing and music is blaring and all kinds of things are going on. And they used to live for that and long for the next occasion. And once they have come to know the grace of God, the joy that is in Him, they now look at that and it's like, oh, that is, there, there's no joy in that. It's, it's just a distraction from the fact that this world has nothing of ultimate substance to offer. And that really, often what the world clings to as their joy and as their pleasure really just serves as a momentary distraction from the very sure fact that it is all empty, that it is all vain, 
but they can overcome those thoughts when it, those thoughts are drowned out by the sound, distracted by the lights, uh, numbed by the activities that they engage in. And the sad reality is this, there is such a deep abiding, now we've got to understand this, and, and the scriptures are very clear about this. Look, we're not pressing people. Do you want to experience happiness? Do you want to experience joy on another level? Then come to Christ. Not as a manipulating tactic. We are declaring this as our personal experience and as the clear teaching of the word. We are rejoicing in this reality. That those who are in Christ, we not simply have a ticket to heaven and someday we'll show that ticket and yay, 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 we get into heaven. No, that, that's not it. it's not just that we're delivered from how we live, but there is in Christ, in knowing Him, in hearing from Him through His Word, through the living Spirit that is within us, there is an experiential reality. There really is a peace that passes understanding. There really is a joy that is unspeakable. And as great as that is, there is more to come. The scriptures tell us that at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And so that's why those who have by grace had the scales removed from their eyes to see the glory of Christ in the gospel. They now look at the other things and say, nothing shines like the sun. Those things, they, they don't have that draw. They don't have that power because they don't have it. The fullness of joy is in Christ. He is above all joys. Indeed, Galatians 5 reminds us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. These are both character, attitude, and experiential realities for the believer. That's why, and, and we love this, when God saves us, He saves the whole man. And that's why when He calls us to how we engage Him, we engage Him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the totality of our being. It's not a, it's not a mere and mindless, mindless orthodoxy, which people speak about, some kind of, we love doctrine, we love doctrine, but uh, seem to be dead and dour. People speak of that, but I don't see how that could ever be the case. If you understand what the scriptures reveal to be true about who God is, about how he saved you, about the power that is at work within you, about the promises that are guaranteed to us because of Christ, how can that not cause our hearts to sing? That's why the psalmist over and over again says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. I will bless the Lord with my whole heart. There can't be a deadness. There's not just a rampant, mindless emotionalism. There's not an emotionless mindfulness. But it is every piece of us. And it is rich. And it is vibrant. And it is above all. That they can't touch it. No, we won't trade it for something because what we would trade it for is so much less by comparison. Also, I, might note, I want to note this in here. Not only do we see pleasures are in Christ from this section in John 3. It also says this in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. So again, we've seen pleasures are in, in Christ are above all. Priority of Christ is above all, even above ourselves. Now, to get a sense of that, the scriptures remind us, um, in spite of what modern teachers and people will say, you know, first you need to learn to love yourself. Yeah, nobody needs to learn that 
That is the natural tendency and bent of ourselves. That's why uh, the instruction of Scripture is to love your wives as you love your own bodies. Love your neighbors as yourself. Because what goes without saying, the natural default tendency of man is to live for themselves. Make decisions that satisfy, consider, please me. What I want. What I think I'll enjoy. What I think will make me happy. And we make those decisions. Where I want to be, what I go, what I want to go, where I want to go, and and it's just filled with the all I factor. But love your neighbor as yourself goes on, and, and Jesus says, explains it in this way, and through the apostles, consider others above yourself. Ooh, that's um, that's not to love them as myself. That's to like love them more than myself. And then we go on even further. You love Christ. You love God above all. And when you do love him above all else, it is easy in his name to love others more than yourself. When it's just a, a, a way of living, a self-help method. And, and men have tried to take the truth of the scripture and just turn it into self-help methods. They turn it into proverbs and aphorisms. They turn it into things such as, uh, it's better to give than receive. And just say it as a simple statement. Because, but even that, they're twisting it into a very self-serving way. See, somebody gives you something, that feels good. But when you give them something, then you get their appreciation. You get their uh, affection. Maybe a little bit of reciprocation. Don't have so you know it is better to give than to receive because if you give, you end up kind of getting more out of it. That's that's a twisted approximation of the idea. Here it again is the simple notion is this: he must increase and I must decrease. More and more, we just learn need to learn to have this thought he is above all and so in every decision how is the name of Christ honored how is the person of Christ glorified because as Christ is honored the father is honored the kingdom and the call of God is honored how do I honor him so what begin what what it is is it's not about me it's not about my name it's not about my notoriety my very existence is about his name. It's designed to make him known. To declare his notoriety. So that people would look to him. Run to him. Seek him. Praise him. If people are. If through what I'm doing. And what I've done. People are turning to him. And praising him. And not me. This is good. This is very good. Now, this is something that's very challenging because we live in a growing era of Christian celebrityism, where you've got all of these known men with the, with the advent of the internet and and the publishing of books. You've got all of these men, and uh, people talk about this author and that author and this preacher and that preacher and that sermon and that sermon. And all, what what sadly can begin to happen is they all talk about their favorite men and the accomplishments of these men and the publications of these men and how many views, how many likes, how many sales. And, and they talk about all these kinds of things. And it sounds a lot like the early church in Corinth. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Apollos. You know, uh, who's your favorite preacher? Who's your... The, the the challenge is these men, and it may be their goal. I'm, not spe I'm speaking of the weakness of our hearts, not necessarily these men's intentions. But the goal isn't when the sermon or message is done that people should sit back and say, that man has a gift. What a great sermon. What an amazing illustration. 
how powerful. People have got to listen to him. I've got to buy more of his books. No, the, the response ought to be, oh, what a savior. Isn't he wonderful? Oh, what a God. Isn't he glorious? Oh, what a truth. Isn't it challenging? But when we get fixated on the mouthpiece and the message is lost behind the man, God help us. So we got to be careful about that and not get wrapped up as people can in a particular man's giftedness, uh, delivery method, skill, um, cultural relevance, style, appearance, whatever it may be. It's got to be Christ above all. He must increase. The hope and prayer for us individually and for every teacher and every preacher and every pastor is that every time that they would go to open the word, every time that they would go to share, hopefully every time that they would write a book or a blog, hopefully the intention is this, that Christ and his glory would increase. Not that I would get more subscriptions. and Not that I would get more. But that Christ would be known through me. Thirdly, even from this John passage, before we jump to a, a bunch of other things. Not only do we have the pleasures are in Christ and the priority of Christ. But we see the preeminence of Christ. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who belongs to the earth or is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Two simple things. How many come from heaven? Even the first Adam where did he come from? God made him out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And everyone subsequent to Adam descended from Adam. Indeed, his wife became the mother of everyone. So everyone is from where? The earth. Save one. There is one who came from above. There is one who came with all of his perfections. And he who came from above is above all. Now, I'm going to say, ask you this question. How much above all is he? And we, we, our minds hopefully will go back. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways above our ways and his thoughts above our thoughts. And I ask you, how high are the heavens above the earth? At present, we still don't have a final calculation. It is now into the multiple billions of light years away. The distance is immeasurable between us and God's ways, us and God's thoughts. The distance is immeasurable between every other man and he who is the son of God, son of man, Jesus Christ. Above all absolute preeminence. And I just want us to begin to see something about the scope of this above all. It says this in verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. All right. He ranks over me because he was before. Now, if we look at the earthly birth, who was born first? John was born, and then subsequently, Jesus was born. So we would think, no, John came first. But what does John know? No, before I was born, even though Jesus was not born, he was. Jesus will go on when he's being challenged 
uh, about the Messiah who was to come. Whose son is he with David? If David said, called him Lord, then whose son is he? And so there's confusion. And then Jesus will say to those who are challenging him, before Abraham was, I am. Say, how can you be that? How is that possible? And what does the scripture tell us? Do you know why? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Jesus Christ, John 1.14 will go on to say, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ was before all things. He is the eternal son of the father. Before all things were created, he existed. God existed. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And actually, Colossians tells us it is through Him that everything ex that exists came into to being. He is before all. He ranks ahead of all. He is above all. Absolute in His preeminence. Let's see. So we see He is uh, above all witnesses. John came and He bore witness. But Jesus will not simply bear witness of himself. He will bear witness of the eternal plan of God and make it clear. He's, God, he's not only above all witnesses, but he's above all prophets. Scripture tells us this in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And there was, we know, an extraordinary experience. Now, this was written in Deuteronomy, and some of us may say, but there were, after Deuteronomy was written, there were surely some great prophets after that. To some measure, yes, and to some extent, yes. But do you remember how often God would, would meet with Moses, not giving him visions, not showing him dreams, he wasn't seeing flaming chariots and seeing a plumb line and seeing uh, uh, buckets and trees and different kinds of things. What he was doing was hearing the voice of God directly and then declaring to people, thus says the Lord. In a powerful, distinctive, and extraordinary manner, so much so that uh, really the scriptures will say, and, and when he's getting ready to pass on, he will say this, the Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen to. Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will raise up a prophet for them like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak, I myself will require it of him. What's, what's interesting and beautiful is that when we look at uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, for example, Jesus takes on this transcendent glory. Appearing with him are Moses and Elijah. That to the children of Israel were the preeminent prophets. And into that scene, as those three apostles were there cowering and confused as to what to do, the voice of God spoke from heaven. And what did he say? Nothing about Moses, nothing about Elisha. What did he say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Above all else, above all that came before, he would indeed in him, his own body, fulfill all of the righteous covenant requirements of God. And he would enact in himself and in his blood, a new covenant. 
He's not to be compared with any that come before him. He is above all prophets. So much that uh, when we consider his word, if, if you do not hear his word or receive his word, it will be required of him, it said in Deuteronomy. This is what Jesus says in John 12, verse 48 and following. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. The words, whoever does not listen to him, of him it will be required. Jesus is the fulfillment. And actually over in Acts chapter 3 and then again later in Acts chapter 7, the apostles themselves make the connection that Jesus is the fulfillment of this very prophecy. Here was Moses, the first and most pronounced prophet. Then here is Elijah, the seemingly most miraculous of the prophets. And in their presence, here is Christ exhibited not merely among them, but above them, supreme, superior, singular, and above all. Not only is he above all prophets and above all witnesses, he's above all priests. We know and we've seen from the scriptures, there were at certain times, though there would be many priests, there would be one high priest. Now, in the older days in the, among the children of Israel, there would be one high priest who would be the high priest for his lifetime. In the later days of the second temple, then there would be certain, it became more political in nature. And so then there would be a small group of men who would rotate as to who was the high priest on a given year. As would happen in the local synagogues, they would rotate as to who is the ruler of the synagogue for a given year. All right? People get political. That should be no surprise to us. But in the original, in the days that it was instituted by God, who chose the high priest? God himself. There were no votes and there were no elections. And as to who then would be privileged to enter into the Holy of Holies that once a year to offer the atoning sacrifice, there was no vote as to who's doing it this year. It was the exclusive duty of the high priest, and he alone would do that. And he would enter into that place just that one time, fulfill those limited functions because it represented the very presence of God, and then he's out the veil to safety. And then he's got to take all those, those clothes and put them aside because those clothes have now become holy. We remember that when Moses used to meet with God in that manner, when he would come out from that place, he himself was radiating and would have to cover his face with a veil because he was literally glowing. Well, that high priest would get to enter once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people from that year. But Hebrews presents to us Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who not once a year, but entered once for all time. Doesn't have to keep going back. Doesn't have to keep going back. On that cross, he bore in his body our sins. So we could go, so is he above all priests? Yes, because what does it say concerning him in the book of Hebrews? We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. We're not talking about simply a high priest who went into the earthly representation of the temple. But we have one who has gone into the very heavenly temple and presence of God. And not only that, it goes on in chapter 6, verse 19 to say this. We have this sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind a curtain or veil where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever 
according to the order of Melchizedek. He is in the presence of God, not once a year, but forever. He is an irreplaceable, immeasurable high priest. I mean, so we can say, above all high priests, above all preceding covenants, above all sacrifices, above all prophets, I could pretty much keep going. And I will, just a little bit. So go with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, verse 41, it says this, Now while the Pharisees were gathered, Jesus asked them a question. And this is where he did ask them about, about David. Um, who do you think, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. And so he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies under your feet, till I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Because Revelation puts it this way, Revelation 17, 14, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So above all rulers, above all kings, Above all that this world has to offer. Really, I mean, when we talk about above all rulers, I say this. Look what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 and following. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things, the church. Over all kings, over all rulers, over all principalities, over all powers, over all gods. Which is not as, as big a deal as we think it is, because this is the way it's stated in Psalm 96, verse 4 and 5. For great is the Lord... And greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And here's why. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. <laughs> but the Lord has made the heavens and the earth. Yes, I mean, it's kind of a given. He's above all gods. Because there are no other gods. <laughs> they don't actually exist. But see, the, the, even for those men who have put in their own worldview and in their own religious deception, some kinds of gods above men and above rulers, and they see a higher power. You'll hear that phrase occasionally. I believe in a higher power. All right. Well, whatever your higher power you believe in, Christ is above that. <laughs> it, Everything that you can conceive of, everything that you know, everything that you think of, Christ is above that. What about above all wisdom? There was no wisdom that matched the wisdom of Solomon. He knew all things. There was no question asked of him that he could not answer. Those who would travel from distances to question him. Queen Sheba, when she questioned him, it says when she was done, there was no breath left in her. And she said, the half of it has not been told to me. But what about Jesus? A greater wisdom than the wisdom of Solomon has come. So everything that you begin to think of, above all nations, above all men, above all kings, maybe we'll go in, even on to say, above every name. It says this in Philippians chapter 2. I mean, we just saw it. In passing in Ephesians 1, it, said, it did say this. Um, and above every name that is named. But look at how it says it in Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. The, the living, the dead, 
basically all that exists, all that's been brought into existence by the creative power of God, it is all beneath Him. He is above all and over all. And I might go further. If this is true, then how should we think of God? And I bring this sort of personally as closing. It's simple for us to say He's above all joys. He's above all things, above all kings, above all prophets, above all sacrifices, above all covenants. Christ is just the preeminent before and above all. But practically, how does that work itself out? How does that express it in our lives? And to, to get a sense of that, I just want to draw our attention to um, a few thoughts and then open something up for us. First of all, it tells us this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, concerning Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The scriptures also go on to say, say this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26, concerning Moses. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. It's one thing to say, to say with a mouth, above all. If you and I truly recognize that Christ is above all, and I'm saying this very clearly, I'm not simply saying, brothers and sisters, we need to put him above all. We need to place him above all. I'm not saying that because you can put him anywhere you want to in your mind. He remains above all. We don't put him there. He is above all. All I'm saying is God help us to recognize that He is above all. And if He really is known to be, believed to be, seen as above all else, these are ways it will practically manifest itself. For Moses, he looked at continued enjoyment there in the Pharaoh's household in Egypt which without a ton of random speculation, you think he ate good? You think they had pretty good food? See, we already know, even from the days where uh, Joseph was imprisoned there, they had a lot of servants working in the house, cupbearers, bakers, I mean, not just chefs, but you got a special guy for pastries. It just shows you the scope of abundance that was the pattern in those sort of things. He had every day the best of the best that the world really had to offer. And he looked at that, and the scripture says, and he looked at Christ. That is more valuable. That is a greater treasure. But when you go that way, you will be reproached. When you go that way, you will be mistreated. When you go that way, you will be despised and abused. Yeah, but I'll have Christ. So, uh, yeah, I lose the respect of all these people. But you know what I have? Christ. I lose that food. But you know what I get to feed on? The words of Christ, the, that heavenly manna that is truer and greater. Yeah, everything that I lose, no. Actually, when really considered, Moses does not consider himself as having lost anything. He considers himself as to gaining. He considered the reproach of Christ, what? Greater wealth. So he's not going to get over there into the reproach of Christ. Hey, everybody, you know how much I gave up to become a Christian? You know how much I sacrificed? You know how much I've suffered? <laughs> he, he, he would be like, you know how much I've gained? Do you know how, how blessed I am? But you and I will hear in the run of our lives, a lot of people in the context of testimony sharing, speaking of things left and things lost. 
And sadly, sometimes it sounds their longing backwards. No. Our longing when we're in Christ, our longing isn't there. It's for more of Christ. Even further, just to unpack this a little clearer for us. This is what Jesus says in Luke 14. And we have this in a number of different places, a number of different parallels in the scripture. But in Luke 14, he says this. Great crowds were accompanying him, and Jesus turned to them and said. I mean, here's all these people who are following them, and Jesus turns to them and effectively begins to weed out the followers. <laughs> because he said, I mean, just like he did in John chapter 8 when he made it so so hard. He said, these words that you share are hard. And many of his disciples turned away at that point. Well, here in Luke chapter 14, verse 25, it says this. Now, great crowds were accompanying him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother. Now, hate there is, is a term that is, is speaking of degree. The way the parallel passages speak it does not love me more than father and mother. So it is a, the hate here is a hate of hyperbole, which means our love for him is so much exceedingly more than even the highest love that we have on this earth that the comparison would like be between the person we actually love on this earth and the person that we hate. <laughs> great divide, that extreme expression. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. But what if he wants to? Uh... What did Jesus say? He cannot be. Because someone is a follower of, and a learner of, and a disciple of Christ, when they what? Love Him above all else. Even more than family? No, and when, part of the expression of loving Him is obeying Him. So, in loving Him, do I also love my children? Do I also love my father and mother? Do I also love my wife? I should. And so I'm called in loving him. I do. I'm to love my neighbor. I'm to love my enemy. There's supposed to be a whole lot of loving going on. But the highest, most exceeding love, the love that enables me to love my enemy, the love that sustains me in loving those that let me down, is that love above all loves. Jesus goes on to say this, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, it's important. Jesus does not say, whoever does not take up my cross. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross. That cross that represents sacrifice, that cross that represents suffering. The cross will never be something that people would equate with convenience and comfort. I can guarantee you that. And so Christ is valued above what? All other relationships. All other, all conveniences. All comforts. And more than that, down in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has... He cannot become my disciple. So above all possessions, which was the problem of the rich young ruler, right? The one thing that he lacked. And so we see that what? Jesus is above all possessions. Jesus is above all comforts. Jesus is above all conveniences. People, Jesus is above all loved ones and all relationships. So that ultimately we might say he is above all. So when we simply unfold this and prepare ourselves to come down and, and take the Lord's Supper, really, I could put an ellipsis there, 
Jesus is above all, you name it. Anything that you can think of, anything, anyone, he's above it all. He's before it all, he's above it all, he sustains it all, and everything will come before him in the end. And so if there's anyone who's to be loved, anyone who's to be obeyed, anyone who's to be treasured, anyone who's to be sought, anyone who's to be served, who is that one? It's Christ above all, before all, and he alone. Let's pray. Lord, we just pray as we um, just want to, in this time that we spent this morning, want it to be a time where there is just a stirring of worship, where the practical realities of, of our natural tendency to think too ordinarily, too human thoughts of you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would eradicate those things and exalt you in our hearts and in our minds this day. That we would indeed know and see and believe that you are above all. And that reality would be experienced in the fullness of our being and it would play out in the way that we live. That everything and everyone, we, will be, we are ready to give up, ready to abandon, ready to quit anything but you. And Lord, we thank you for the grace that shows us your glory, that shows us that there is no treasure to be compared with you. The grace that causes us to look at all that we had and consider it rubbish compared to knowing you. God, may this grace that has worked within us continue its work of renewing our minds as the world continues to set things in front of us and say, treasure this, desire this, enjoy this, hold on to this. Lord, we pray that by your grace, we would see the glory of Christ above all, and it would be to him that we would hold fast because he alone is the sure and steadfast anchor for our soul, the name above every name, the prophet, the priest, and king above all, the man above all men. Lord, that we might know him in his fullness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.